Welcome to Foster Strong, a podcast where America's alumni of foster care share captivating and compelling stories of what it was like growing up in the foster care system. Each episode, we explore how our time in foster care shaped us into the resilient individuals we are today. Hey, everyone. This is Raya. This is Adrian. Hey there, it's Carrie. What's up, everybody? This is Lino. So today we're going to talk a little bit about mental health. Um, you know, we're going to share a little bit about our stories, have a little open dialogue. Um, the implications of mental health itself is, you know, astronomical when it comes to foster care. And it's a really important topic that I know a lot of you have a lot to say about. Yeah, I know our listeners out there are all dealing with all sorts of uh, mental issues that are going on right now or mental challenges just anxiety for those who just recently graduated, those who are getting ready to age out of the system. Uh, mental health comes in many forms. Uh, I think we're going to talk to uh, have a conversation today about uh, what mental health actually means and also the stigmas associated with mental health uh, and our experiences and challenges with it of growing up uh, in the system. Because um, I know it, it, it's, it greatly impacts my life even to this day um, in terms of that. And we're also going to talk about have a conversation about self-care. Uh, and what ways we've been practicing and give some of our listeners who are out there listening to us right now some ways that they can practice some good self-care if they haven't already done so. Yeah, and Adrian, you mentioned anxiety that people may be feeling right now as graduation has either passed or is coming up. I think the other important thing to recognize is that this pandemic has had a huge impact on everyone's mental health. Um, It's forced people into isolation. It's pushed them away from their regular support systems and their regular coping mechanisms. And now more than ever, a conversation about mental health is critical. You layer on top of that everything that's happening with police brutality and racial injustice, and it just becomes even more critical. So I'm so I'm really happy we're having this conversation. Yeah, and speaking of that, uh, Carrie, uh, if you for those who are out there listening, if you haven't listened to the episode that we did last week, a special episode, um, Black Lives Matter, where we had Candy Slam and Ivy Marie on, please go back and listen to that. I know, Lino, you had done some a little bit of research and talked about some foster youth um, are at some higher rates when it comes to some mental health challenges. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it is well-researched that foster youth have higher rates of PTSD than vets. And that is significant. Foster youth, they're in the foster care system because of abuse and neglect. And the continuation of this abuse and neglect, it, it, it changes your brain, physically changes your brain forever. And so in that sense, there are mitigative things that we can do. So in some sense, you know, I kind of I think of the listeners and this is something that kind of touches everyone. And we have something to say on it because that's the nature of our existence from such a young age. So right off the bat, you know, Adrian, you have a lot to say about self-care. And I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, like, what, you know, what's your take on this? Gotcha. So the first thing, uh, good points, Leo. I want to say for our listeners out there, uh, Lino's right. It is well researched. I believe the re- latest research is about foster youth are two or three times more likely to suffer PTSD than those who uh, serve in the military. And when you and think can about, can we pause there for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Because while I think many of our listeners will hear that and have some understanding of it, I also think it's important to point out this difference that a lot of veterans suffer post traumatic stress disorder, and that is 
a singular period of time of traumatic events. And so that is when they are shipped off at war and for, you know, six months or however long it is, they experience extreme trauma. Well, for kids that are in foster care, they often have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is a sequence and years and years of trauma. And so not only do kids who have gone through the foster care system have higher rates of PTSD, it's often complex and very layered, and it's years of adverse experiences, which makes them so much more amazing and resilient when you think about everything that they have been through and the years and years of trauma that is layered there. So even on that front, there's actually an, a, a reduction of life expectancy by roughly 20 years. Um, for anybody who are you is trying to kill me off early? Is that the, is that your whole purpose of making that stat? Because I'm not trying to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it comes from a lot of us have heard of the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And if you have four more adverse childhood experiences, so that's you know four more traumatic events that are this is this layered complex trauma that Carrie's talking about, is your life expectancy from the studies is reduced by 20 years and there's 60% higher rates of ischemic heart diseases and various other health complications that are physically manifesting in our bodies. Absolutely, which is all the more reason and important to practice good self-care, which is what we want to kind of shift the focus of the conversation to and what are some good self-care routines. Uh, I personally, uh, not only am I a huge, huge proponent of self-care, uh, I encourage it and talk about it all the time because I think it is important to recharge the batteries. Uh, I am one of those people where I'm an empath. And so for some of you listeners out there and even some of the co-hosts who understand what that means, basically that means is you feel what other people are going through. And so that can bring a huge burden weight on you. However, at the same time, I actually take a lot of time um, for self-care. Every single year I take a sabbatical, uh, sometimes two sabbaticals, because I think it's important to recharge the batteries. Uh, I go to Georgia every single year around 4th of July uh, weekend where I go down to my grandma's house, somewhere where I grew up, uh, a place where I grew up down in Georgia. Um, actually, I am taking two sabbaticals. I had to take one just a couple of weeks ago because of everything that was going on of being a black man in America, let's be honest, uh, and all the things that were going on around that. I actually had to check out. And self-care could mean not taking a trip. Self-care could mean getting off of social media, which is what I did for a few days. Self-care could mean uh, therapy. Uh, which we'll talk about a little bit. There's stigma associated with that. I think therapy is important. Self-care can mean reading, writing, working on crafts, uh, things that you are really, really good at, things that help you take a focus away from some of those stressors. So um, it's very, very important. So I'm going to open it up here to ask some of my uh, co-hosts here, what are you, some things that y'all are doing to practice good self-care? But more importantly, when's the last time you actually took time out for yourself to practice good self-care? Let's start there. So when I think of self-care, I have this little analogy that you know it's like a water bottle and the water bottle analogy is basically that as it fills up you know everyday life the stresses of every day presses on the water bottle and makes it overflow and that's when you kind of feel that those feelings of being overwhelmed out of control feeling powerless and so taking a sip from that water bottle is that self-care. It's nourishment. It's nurturing yourself. And so I love, love that you framed that question in the, f in the sense that what are you doing for yourself? Lena, are you saying so if we just drink water, we'll feel better? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> That's what I heard. 
Yeah. It literally and figuratively though. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, dealing with what's going on inside. Yeah. So like one of the things is how much sleep are you getting? How, what, how much water are you intaking on literally on, on a daily basis? What does your meals look like? So those, so those are some of these keystone habits that affect our other habits. So good sleep schedules, like studies have shown that the more sleep you get, the better you are at managing your emotions. I feel like I'm being attacked by Lino because he's attacking what I drink. He's attacking what I eat. He's attacking that I don't sleep enough. So I'm going to turn it over to Rye. Rye, do you have some good self-care routine? Because I feel like Lino's attacking me right now and I want, I need some help. <laughs> so believe it or not, as um, a podcast host, I am pretty introverted. Um, and that I learned that it meant something different than just being shy or, you know, not willing to go out of my way to talk to somebody. But it more so meant that I'm, I can be very exhausted by social interactions. And I think this pandemic and all of, um, you know, just everything going on in the world right now and how active social media is, it has been very exhausting for me. Um, last week, I deleted all of my social media apps on my phone for the weekend. I spent my last weekend at home before moving to DC just with my family and trying to stay very present um, because that stuff is very exhausting for me. So that's one of my biggest practices is knowing when I need to be by myself and kind of shut off those interactions. Um, and that's probably my biggest step towards um, self-care. Um, and I think Carrie mentioned earlier that COVID's interrupted a lot of self-care routines. I also do a lot of working out um, as a method of self-care. And it's been really hard to adjust from going to the gym to working out at home and keeping up with that schedule. So I'm mapping it out, I think, still as we go along. But as long as I make little efforts each day, it helps. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you on the fitness. I, I always say I have like three F's that I have to prioritize. And that's one, my faith. One or two, fitness. I can't count today, apparently. And three, it's face masks. And I know a lot of people joke that face masks and long baths aren't self-care. But for me, it really is because it's about slowing down and resting. And my understanding and relationship with mental health is that I have a tendency to try and avoid by staying busy. And th this came up for me when I was in college and I was seeing a therapist and he asked me in my intake session if I thought I was depressed. And I was like, are you kidding me? I just told you everything that's going on in my life. I'm really busy. I have all these social activities going on. And how could you think I'm depressed? Like depressed people stay at home and sleep all the time and only wear black. That was a horrible <laughs> stereotype that I had of depressed people. And he's like, one, no, that is not the case. Um, and then he explained to me that depression, <laughs> I love this analogy. Um, he said that depression is simply pressing down emotions and feelings that you don't want to deal with, that are painful, that are hard to confront face on. And it's much easier to press those feelings down with a busy calendar, staying busy, which is what I do. And some people press those hard feelings and painful emotions down with alcohol, with drugs, with food. Name your poison, whatever it may be. But that really shifted my understanding of mental health. 
Big facts, big facts. Uh, similarly, Carrie, actually, I remember back in high school, uh, quick story, um, my father, my biological father died in my senior year of high school, which is a huge, huge year for most people out there um, who are listening or um, uh, caseworkers or foster parents like that. Um, so my father died a day after Valentine's Day. It was on a Sunday. And I went to school on Monday like nothing ever happened. Um, and I remember when I got access to my case files, my caseworkers were documenting something that I thought was I was doing really, really well at hiding, they were documenting that I was dealing with grief by continuing to fill up my calendar. So my my schedule for that summer literally went from uh, I'd be home for a week, then I'd travel for a week. I'd be home for a week and travel weeks. I was always on the road traveling so that I didn't have to deal with the emotions back home of someone who just lost their dad or having to deal with the trauma and uh, loneliness of growing up in foster care. So I absolutely agree with the analogy that you used that your, uh, that your therapist used about uh, suppressing of emotions now because you don't want to do them at the time. So I guess my question would be, um, the quarantine and the pandemic has actually probably exasperated a lot of those feelings and emotions. What has been your go-to self-care routine during this time? Because actually the pandemic can actually have a lot of those feelings bubble up because a lot of you have a lot of time to sit and think, but that could also cause some challenges too. So what have y'all been doing to kind of get through this this new age life that we're living right now? Yeah. Um, self-care for me right now is a lot about setting the environment. So it has to do with the smell. You know, if I put on incense or light a candle or, you know, turn down the lights, put on, you know, one lamp in my room. So the, the light, the room is dimly lit. Um, and I usually do it at transitions throughout the day. So when I change from the work environment where all the lights are on, all the windows are open um, so I really set my environment also, you know, gives me that feeling of empowering, that empowering feeling that I can, I have control over those things and I can set, I can clean my room, I can do the dishes. So, and that's all within my own home. So I don't even have to leave the home to make a cup of tea, smell it and, and just enjoy some different fragrances, some dim lights, some calming music. That's literally for me, my self-care routine all the time. Lino's like, I enjoy the rich smell of mahogany and leather-bound books. <laughs> <laughs> that is some very zen-like stuff there, Lino. You did mention some very zen-like stuff. <laughs> what about you, Rai? What are you doing in, in quarantine? Um, well, I have to be honest. I um, filled up my brain slash calendar with planning a move. So I can't say that I um, 100% took charge of my self-care, but I have a habit of setting a goal for myself. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, really just doing everything I can to go after it. And, um, you know, during quarantine, it helped to keep me busy and keep my mind busy to really plan for this move. And I'm really happy with how it worked out. What about you, Carrie? I think for me, the start of this quarantine or pandemic, I made a long list of everything I was going to accomplish and I've accomplished maybe two things out of the 30 I wrote down. <laughs> um, and so I think I just have had to have grace on myself that I'm less motivated right now and that's okay and that I don't have to complete everything on this to-do list. Um, and it's also been increasing the amount of times that I go to therapy. I used to go bi-weekly before the pandemic, but as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, 
it has an impact on your mental health. And for me, prioritizing my mental health is so important that I realized I needed to increase the amount of times I was seeing my therapist. I actually uh, have scheduled to see my therapist in July because of my busy schedule, which is probably a form of me not wanting to deal with it right away. <laughs> but I've put it on the <laughs> calendar. Right. I've put it on the calendar for later. Um, I will say that that's a good good segue as we get ready to kind of talk about our personal experiences with uh, mental health. I think like even in this conversation, we are a little bit more open to talking about mental health as opposed to it uh, in the past. Uh, and I'll just put out there for our listeners out there, um, as someone who comes from the African American community, mental health is a huge huge stigma and so we don't talk about it a lot and so over the last few weeks I've actually talked about it I've talked about it a lot and been very very open with it but that has not been the traditional case um, also uh, coming from the foster care system um, it's not something that you want to talk about too because these stigmas associated with growing up in foster care uh, there's something wrong with you you have some problems you have some challenges and so I'm glad that we the four of us are having this open dialogue and this conversation for our listeners out there um, and so how do you think that us having this conversation today um, is going to improve or help our listeners out there be more open to talking about it, either with their friends, their peers, uh, their caseworkers, their family. Like, how do we help them understand that it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to seek help? Well, I think we have to, to be able to help them understand that, we have to really share openly our relationship with it. What it used to be when we were in care, whether it was talked about or not talked about, whether we had a good therapist or a horrible therapist and how that relationship with mental health and therapy has changed over the years as we have become adults and left the foster care system. I mean, right off the bat, simply if, if you've made it to this point and you're listening to what we're talking about right now, I want to just pause and I want to ask you, what is one thing that you can do right now that just give yourself one minute you can press pause, you can come back to us right afterwards, and just give yourself one minute and do something that you love. That's it. That's all it takes. So are you going to give an example, you know, with this one minute, or are we just going to have a one minute of dead air? No, it's not going to be dead <laughs> air. It's just, it's just continuation. <laughs> no, I think that's a good point. I think that we should all pause at some point uh, in the day, in the week. I know that I am notorious, uh, and to the detriment of my neighbors, I am notorious uh, for doing uh, Bruce Springsteen concerts for three and a half <laughs> hours in my apartment. But that is a form of self-care. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that I was most looking forward to when I aged out of the system was looking forward to my own place. Um, and I don't think that we realize how traumatic and how impactful that is on our mental health, where we are constantly being told what to do, how to do, when to do it. Um, and it's not in the traditional family sense. Um, it's done by... Uh, foster care, for those who live in group homes, for those who live in residential treatment facilities. Um, it's very, very difficult. So when I got my own place, that lifted a huge burden and kind of helped me out mentally where this is my space. I claim this as my own. I can come and go as I please. I can have a three and a half hour Bruce Springsteen concert and not worry about anything <laughs> except for maybe the occasional eviction notice because I was being too loud. Uh, yeah, please tell us how many noise complaints you have to date. <laughs> but that, was, that is a form 
form of my mental health and self-care is performing and letting all of my anger frustrations because music is a huge, huge stress reliever. I know many of our listeners out there love music, listen to music. Everyone has go-to music. Uh, even during downtimes, uh, there are a couple occasions a year where I actually listen to sad music on purpose because of the memories that it invokes of losing loved ones or losing people that I was very, very close to. So, Wow. I mean... A lot of a lot of thoughts and feelings are starting to come up now that I'm thinking in a little more about mental health, you know, growing up. And, you know, there was never really that I never throughout my entire time, I've spent sixteen years in care. I saw a therapist once. And it was for one hour. It was just like an intake session to see if I needed therapy. I'm so, I'm flabbergasted why I wasn't automatically put in therapy or wasn't, you know, didn't have any kind of relationship. And so there was no language. We, I grew up in a Hispanic family and there, we never talked about anything explicitly in that sense. Everything was just either dubbed as um, depression, which is like, in some sense, actually depression as the word, but it, it context, never meant Context anything. clues helped me out with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds Ooh, like depression. But can I say something really quick, really fast? Just yeah. And I'm sorry for interjecting. Humor is a form of dealing with mental health. A lot of times <laughs> we use humor, as we just did, to kind of divert from the serious things that we do with a lot. Um, and so, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. There's some other thoughts that I have, but go ahead, Lou. I just want to say that it's it's kind of funny how we think about it as adults now, just all these little quirks and traits that we have on how we deal with mental health and not really classifying it until we actually speak to a professional about it in terms of kind of like just hurry up and try to divert the attention away from something serious. We'll pivot to humor or pivot to something else or make ourselves busy, like Carrie mentioned earlier, stuff like that. Yeah, and I think the the other thing that's really important about that and in, in, in incorporating humor is that, you know, we want to make sure that we're not just brushing everything off, which is why, you know, I'm glad that you're like, all right, bring it back, bring us back to it. Because that's something that, I mean, there was a phase in my life where, you know, dealt with something humorously and just let it pass, never dealt with it again until it came back up. And so the thing is, is that like, in every sense, mental health and, you know, having language, just being able to identify the way you feel and say, I feel this way, you know, that is something that I'm, I'm glad that you spoke about the stigma of mental health, because to this day, I have to kind of push myself to go to therapy, even though I feel personally that I don't need it. And so it's just, um, can you ask, if you're comfortable sharing, can you tell our listeners or explain, you know, and not just our listeners, but us as well, as to why you don't feel like you need it? Because oftentimes those of us who say it, because I say it a lot too, say that we don't need it, but it's, but sometimes the case. Can you share, like, your feelings? Because I'm pretty sure there are folks out there listening who can relate to that as well. Absolutely. Right off the bat, my feeling is, am I, do I think about my issues? Do I face them? Or do I just bottle them away? And... A lot of the time, first off, there's a lot. So, like, I remember when I did go to therapy, I, like, I would come with bullet points, outlines. I'd have genograms on top of genotypes. <laughs> and my therapist would be like, what? It takes a while for therapists to understand. Don't worry. Yeah, I did the intake you know, for you. <laughs> we're like, yo, we got our biological family, our foster family, this foster family, this adoptive family. My adoptive family fell apart. So, <laughs> <my> family. <laughs> For real. And 
that's that's what I'm saying is that like it takes first off a long time. So like I have to build a really long, you know, continuous relationship. And so I found for me that therapy is just not not going to be a weekly thing. And that's that's what I mean is that like oftentimes when we talk about going to therapy or feeling like we need therapy, it's we're picturing this like Freudian like someone sitting you're laying down on the couch and you meet every week and you talk about your problems. And that it's not. is exactly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I sprawl out on that couch. I'm like, uh, do you have a blanket? Is there a blanket in here too? <laughs> a weighted blanket. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I personally feel that like I deal with my issues and I've gotten this far without a therapist that that's what, that's the feelings that I have sometimes, but I have to suck that up sometimes and just say, you know what? Every couple of months rather than, you know, it's, it's a mitigative thing. I, what therapy, what I found now is that it's a dedicated set time to discuss things that I normally will think about anyways. But now since it's dedicated, I don't have to worry about it throughout the week. So it's like, I can wait till Friday. I'll just jot it down in my notes and then we'll talk about it during that therapy session instead of, perseverating and ruminating on it the entire time so overall i do think therapy and i'm sad that i didn't get it growing up but you know i'm now can say that i'm more open to it yeah lino i think i can relate to that a lot um the only recollection i have of therapy you know while in care was some form and it's it's very vague and um you know pieces that I think I'm still putting together but um I the only version of therapy that I can think about is this type of family therapy that I know I went to when my mom was not supposed to be living in our home um you know she was removed um due to a substance use problem and she um I guess we were seeing this therapist to kind of gauge whether she could come back into the family or, you know, what that looked like. But I remember my parents saying, like, you know, because my mom had been staying with us anyway. She had nowhere else to go. And um, she was living with us even when she wasn't supposed to be. So they walked us in and said, whatever you do, don't tell them that mommy's still in the house. So my only memory um, and experience with a therapist has been um, – you know, to lie to them and how easy I got off. And they were like, okay, like no problem. They didn't see through it, anything. So, um, I still struggle to this day to walk into a therapist's office for a lot of the same reasons of building the rapport with someone, um, getting them advanced enough to know my story, but also knowing that I carry those feelings of I'm okay. I don't need it. And if I don't want to tell them I'm not going to, and they're going to believe the lies that I tell them anyway. Um, and so I just want to take a minute to acknowledge that, um, there's all these obstacles that come into walking into those offices, but, um, I've also built a really great support system as an adult to, um, you know, have people come in my life say, I'll walk in with you, you know, maybe not to the session, but into that office. And that's been really supportive and helpful for me. So, right. I think you bring up a great point. Uh, and for our listeners out there, it's, Therapy does not necessarily mean that you have to go to a professional. Therapy is spending time with families. Therapy is spending time with things that you like to do, spending time with people that you love, 
things, time with people that you've built rapport with. Now, if you need professional help and guidance, there's nothing absolutely wrong with that. Um, but uh, again, what we're trying to talk about today is demystifying the stigma of the Freudian type thing that Lena talked about, where it's the person sitting in the big chair with their legal pad and a pen, and you're laying on the chase lounge, just spilling your guts about what's going on in your life. Um, to your point about uh, Raya, about the lying and kind of what therapy was used for. I think if you grew up in care, therapy was seen as an enemy because they were trying to get information on you about your biological family to, uh, to, to what end you don't know, but it, your parents or your biological family always made it seem like it was a bad thing. And so you being the child that you are wanted to protect your family. You love your family. So you're not going to tell them anything that they can use as ammunition at court. And so, for our listeners out there, I know some of you have had these feelings or have gone through these feelings before, and it is hard to get through those. Um, but my goal and my hope is that as you continue to listen to this podcast, you now have an outlet in the form of these young people who have gone through the system and who are now saying that mental health is okay to acknowledge. That's the first thing, to acknowledge that it exists. But more importantly, that it's okay to express yourself um, and get the help that you need, want, or seek. Absolutely. And sorry, Carrie, just one more point is that, um, you know, self-care is just that it's for yourself and it's okay to be selfish in those times and in those moments. Um, And so I think it's just very interesting that for us uh, or many of us who have had a similar experience have only seen um, any kind of mental health counselor or therapist in a family matter and never for yourself. Um, It was never dedicated to us. And so I want to encourage everybody to be selfish when it comes to taking care of you. Yeah. And I think you both brought up really great points about, I especially love that it's not all about therapy in the traditional form, but there are many other ways to address the trauma that you may have experienced in your childhood. And that's really what we want to encourage you to do is don't brush it under the rug. Don't avoid it. Don't dismiss it because it will show up in bigger ways down the line. And for me, I have seen the ways that generational trauma has torn apart my families, my biological family, my adoptive family. And it's been really hard to look back and see like the chains that generational trauma can have on a family. And so that's why I'm so committed to just dealing with the trauma head on, even though it sucks and it's not fun. And there's many times I don't want to do it. And I think it's really unfair, but I know that I would be doing a disservice to myself and my future generations if I didn't. So I think that is like the big message that we want our listeners to know. And there's many ways to address that trauma. It could be journaling. It could be yoga, meditating, faith, whatever, but deal with it. Could be listening to the Foster Strong podcast and reaching out to us on any of our platforms that you have. See that shameless plug I just put in there? But it's true, though. (laughs) Um, I I think that people need an outlet. They need to know that people out there who have gone through what they've gone through um, and have come out on the other side. But more importantly, if they haven't come out on the side, they're still dealing with it. I think that's one of the things that I have tried to do since I've aged out of the system is to not act like that I've made it. I am a work in progress. I will always be a work in progress. Just because you age out of the system does that does not mean that you have now conquered every single thing that you've gone through in life. It doesn't mean that those challenges, that trauma, that loneliness, that depression, that those things all go away and that just magically you're fixed or you're better. And so uh, it's my hope that you, if you're out there listening, that you realize that we're still working through this ourselves as well. Um, and as it's, it's a lifelong journey to get to a place of, Zen so that we could light our incense and drink our tea and be happy like Lino. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, we have this saying like trauma to triumph and that is our mission. And that is our goal is that foster care isn't all this doom and gloom and you're, you're wedded to this traumatic life. That's not the case because I think all of us on this podcast and many of us on the team, if not everyone would say that experiencing our trauma made us who we are today, made us more resilient. I don't know who used the analogy of us living a lifetime by the time we were already preteens and the impact that that's had on us to just chase our dreams more boldly um, and be more brave in other aspects. But I think that is really important to remember. Yeah, Carrie, I've heard, you know, often people say that we've lived before we've even had the chance to start our lives, like the average person at the age of 18 when they become an adult or um, move into their first home or whatever it may be. But we were able to get past that and continue moving forward. And like Adrian said, continue working towards um, our successes and health um, as we go forward. And so I just want to ask all of you what one what you can maybe pinpoint to one thing, um, one quality, one reminder that you've continued to tell yourself that has made you triumphant through all of this. Triumphant, such a big word, like officially legit. Um, I The one thing that I have learned um, is that in this constant pursuit of perfection that I am on, I am imperfect. And I when I learn to accept that, I believe I became sort of okay um, because when you're in the system, um, so many stories and so many stats and so many case files and so many changes and placements make it seem like you are the problem. You are the problem. So when you start becoming an adolescent and you start developing your own way of doing things, you're like, you know what? I'm going to be on this constant pursuit that I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm going to be the best person, blah, blah, blah. And then still realize that, you know, I continue to screw up all the time. So my quality is recognizing that it's okay to fail. I think that that is a huge, huge lesson that I've learned, that it's okay to fail, that it's okay to fall down as long as I'm getting back up and still working towards the goal. So um, that's not the traditional quality, but for me, I'm okay with not always getting it right um, and learning from that. Man, man, I love that. I feel that so hard. It's just the, it's the triumph part that I, that I, I really feel that. And... And that's something that I want to, you know, communicate saying that in this whole discussion of mental health and trauma, uh, the thing is, is we often hear that trauma is healed, which implies that there, the work is done. And I think what we're trying to say is that it's, it's never done. The work is never done. There's always work to do. And the thing is, is I think that's where mental health comes into play on that front where it's like the work is continuous. So yeah, like for me, the one thing that I can think back to is I ask a lot of questions internally, like alone by myself. I, it's perspective taking is what it's commonly known as. Uh, but I, you know, for my life, I remember all the way back to when I was first taken away, um, living in an orphanage with my sister. And when we were taken away in the back of this patrol car, I had asked myself two questions. I was five years old at the time. It was, does my mom not want me? And I think I mentioned this also. I, I've told the story um, during our launch event that it's on Facebook uh, with the Children's um, Society, Home Society of North Carolina, and you can go back and watch the video. But basically, I asked myself these two questions. Does my mom not want me? And, you know, is it my fault? And it makes me feel 
two very specific emotions from those same questions. And the more questions you ask, so I'm asking now, what, what if she can't find me or what if she can't get to me, right? I was five years old. So these new questions, each new question gave me a different emotional response. And so for me, like my most powerful tool is asking questions and expanding my mind beyond the situation because it allows me to feel a bunch of emotions rather than just one really intense emotion. And that to me was, was everything. Yeah, Lena. And I think, um, you know, the questions are important and I didn't ask those until, um, a lot later in my life. I don't think I really recognized my mental health until a lot later in life. And that's what brought on along of those, a lot of those questions, but that, you know, one triumphant quality, um, or whatever it may be, for me is, um, I talked a little bit earlier about how I have a habit of setting a goal. And I think, you know, my experience has just given me this ability to put the blinders on um, and, you know, find ways to block out the things going on in my life. And really, especially those around me, um, because I associate myself so closely with my loved ones and um, just all the the chaos that they may bring to the table too. But when I need something, I have the ability to put my blinders on and really go, go for it. And, um, I really attribute that to my experience. Which is amazing, Raya. Um, and is a a quality that I think you can appreciate because of your experiences. I, I think in my case, as we're talking about all of this, I think about recently when I received some of my case files and an evaluation that a psychiatrist did on me when I was five. And she said in the evaluation, Carrie's first five years of life can be best marked by consistent trauma. And I think about that statement and how now I am so committed to dealing with that trauma because that is not what my life will be marked by. And that is something that I know I have to deal with so that it doesn't control me. And I wouldn't have been able to do that in my life if it weren't for the support systems and the relationships I've had that have encouraged me to be vulnerable, to have grace for myself and for everything that I have experienced and have encouraged and affirmed me that my past does not dictate my future. So I know that the saying it takes a village to raise a child is thrown around a lot, but I think it is so true and relevant. And I'm so excited that next week on the podcast, we are going to dive into relationships and dissect how the different relationships in our lives have helped us become the people that we are today. So I think we're going to wrap up today's episode. We're so glad you all listened in today and are walking this journey with us. We want to encourage you that if you need anything, we want to be a resource. If you have similar feelings and similar stories to us, we're telling them because we want you to reach out and connect with us. Our emails are all on our website at youarefosterstrong.org. And we also this week will be sharing additional resources with you about mental health. There are many help and assistance out there that you can get as someone who's in foster care or has experienced foster care. Um, And we're going to be sharing those on our social media platforms. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at youarefosterstrong and like our Facebook page. 
that is all we have for you today. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.